This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll revisit the opioid epidemic. More specifically, with me to discuss pharmacological responses to mitigating the crisis is Dr. Steve Pasek. He is the VP of Scientific Affairs, Education and Policy at Collegium Pharmaceuticals in Massachusetts. Dr. Pasek, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here with you. Uh, thank you again. Dr. Pasek's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Uh, I will say uh, further, uh, Steve's comments will be his own. On background, the opioid epidemic continues apace. According to the CDC last year, of the over 60,000 drug overdose deaths, two-thirds involved in opioid. It's estimated 115 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. Uh, these fatalities include prescription opioids and heroin, were five times higher last year than in 1999. The amount of prescription opioids sold to pharmacies, hospitals, and doctors' offices have nearly quadrupled in recent years. Yet, interestingly, there has not been an overall change in the amount of pain Americans report. This past December, the National Center for Health Statistics reported life expectancy in the U.S. fell for the second year in a row, again to the continuing surge in fatal opioid overdoses. I'm not prone to dramatic statements. Robert Anderson, Chief of Mortality Statistics at NCHS stated, but I think we should really be alarmed. The federal government's response to the epidemic has been to be polite limited. However, earlier today in passing its fifth continuing resolution, the Congress appropriated a limited amount of money, $6 billion, over a two-year period to address this crisis. Finally, listeners may recall in November 2016, I interviewed Dr. Anna Lemke, Chief of Addiction Medicine at Stanford University, regarding her book, Drug Dealer MD. With me again to discuss pharmacological responses to the opioid epidemic is Steve Pasek. So with that as a background, Steve, let me ask if you, uh, first, if you could just briefly describe your work at Collegium. Yeah, so um, I am, by background, a clinical psychologist. I was trained in pain and addiction, and I am not a lifer in pharma. I uh, had a 25-year career as an academic and clinical psychologist working in both cancer pain and non-cancer pain, and my area of interest uh, began with pain and substance abusers with HIV many years ago and, um, and has always um, been focused on the interface of pain and addiction. Um, after 25 years of, of, of practice um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, Vanderbilt University, and the University of Kentucky, I've decided finally to make the jump um, to industry, and it was largely in response to my observation that so many people were losing access to care, um, uh, to pain care in general, and opioid therapy for those who legitimately need it as well. And I felt that I wanted to be part of an effort to try to bring innovative and safer products, um, opioid products or non-opioid products for that matter, to the, to the marketplace. Um, because I, uh, just as I say, was, was 
just observing how our attempts to respond to the crisis um, have have caused a, a, a such a dramatic swing of the pendulum from opioids to everybody for almost opioids for nobody. And um, clearly, we need innovation and a multifaceted approach to try to solve the problem. And I wanted to be part of that solution and felt that I might be able to do that by um, working on the scientific side of industry um, and and try to do good for a larger group of people than working in a pain clinic, seeing one person at a time. Thank you. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, before we get into uh, the specifics here, again, pharmacological responses, Relative to your training, uh, your educational training, formal training, and your experience you noted at Sloan Kettering and elsewhere, I'd probably be remiss. So let me ask you, what's your understanding or how do you explain the reasons for what's causing uh, this epidemic? So that's a terrific question. And certainly, you know, I sat back and my heart goes out to all the all the families and all the people that have been that have that have suffered harm over the last several years, either because they, you know, got their hands on um, opioid products and that were diverted, or if they were treated and um, and then uh, for pain and lost control of uh, of of their use of these medicines, uh, and plus minus the people that started that way and ended up on on illicit opioids. I mean, let's at the end of the day, there's been a tremendous amount of loss on both sides. People with pain who've lost access or have lost the ability to, to feel better and function. And there's been a rash and an increase in suicides amongst pain patients. And my heart goes out to them. And, of course, my heart goes out to the people on the other side, the people who've become addicted and the people who uh, were harmed by by the fact that there were so many so much opioid out there given the increase that, that they were able to get in trouble by using diverted opioid. And and you can tell by my response, you know, that, that um, there are so many subgroups of people, uh, people with pain who are not, a, who don't have problems with addiction, people with pain who do have problems with addiction, uh, um, people with primarily substance abuse who have pain, and people who with substance abuse alone. And, you know, we one of the problems I have with this whole phenomenon, from how we describe how people get addicted to how people end up overdosed, tends to lump very diverse subgroups of people together and assumes that, you know, there's one or two magic bullet solutions to the whole crisis when, in fact, the devil really is in the details. And, and dissecting and understanding who these various subgroups are is really important because different strategies and, and aspects of solutions need to be applied to these different subgroups of people. Thank you. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. This is a phenomenally complex, uh, complex problem involving a, a good number of disparate, as you say, subpopulations. So with that, let's, uh, let, me, let me go to um, uh, this issue of, again, pharmacological responses. Um, so from that perspective, or from the prescribing pharmacology perspective, uh, what policies or practices do you, do you think from that specific uh, angle are contributing or causing this persistence or contributing to the problem? So, you know, we went from, you know, and, and, and this has been going on, honestly, for, for 
2,000 years around opioids. Are they safe? Are they not safe? Um, does addiction reside in them? Does it not? And I think, you, you know, when, when, we, when we talk about, you know, how um, the massive increase in prescription opioids happened, and we did, as you mentioned quite, quite accurately, have a four to five hundred percent increase in opioid prescribing, um, you know, that, that was born not just out of uh, deceptive marketing and greed, and, you know, that's kind of the only layer of the, of the story that's been told. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's a factor, the sort of corporate greed version of the story is definitely an important one. But there are also others. And, you know, I was working within the system um, during all that time. And, uh, you know, I'm writing my own book on the subject. And I, you know, from my perspective, I mean, I wrote a letter to the editor in 2001 uh, of a major pain journal. And I said, guys, we're starting to get warning signals. If we don't raise our standard of care for how, not whether or not we're going to use opioids, but how we use opioids, if we don't do that, um, we are, we're, we're headed for a public health catastrophe. And I, I, saw it, I saw it coming. And the funny thing was, back in those days, I was often perceived as a person who was kind of trying to put the brakes on, on what was otherwise a very well-intentioned, in some instances, movement amongst healthcare providers who were just fed up with watching, knowing that we had some effective molecules and treatments around, but that, 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 um, that, that they couldn't get them to the people who needed them. And it was a night. It was naive, and, and frankly, it was almost had the qualities of a religious movement at the time. But what, for whatever set of perfect storm reasons of an aging population, an increasingly obese population, more and more chronic pain, new products coming out, industry stepping into there, there are a whole range of reasons. But we did, in fact, foster a revolution of prescribing. What we, to me, a big part of this story is is how difficult it is to raise standard of care. So meaning to say, if people are going to be, if, 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 if the predominant way that people are going to get opioids in our society, uh, as it was during these last 10 to 15 years, is in an eight-minute visit with a non-expert once a month with minimal monitoring, that model of sort of, which is essentially what I'm, I'm describing there as a primary care way of doing opioid mm -hmm. therapy, that's going to help a sliver of the pain population and also a recipe for disaster in, a, in, a, in another very large segment of the pain population. And, and, when, and, and so I was doing it for 25 years, applying principles of addiction medicine in a pain clinic. Um, we had some people who got a week's worth, who got their urine tested, who got psychotherapy, who got recovery support, who got certain opioid molecules and not others. Um, there, there are ways of doing this um, that, interestingly, people used to think I was nuts when I said, hey, I've got this patient and we've exhausted non-opioids and I need to see them back once a week because, I, because they have a history of chemical dependency and so they need to be watched really closely. And people would say, that's crazy. You can't really do that on a mass scale. And yet now you have certain states with, with opioid policy quantity limits trying to say that that's how everybody should be treated. So we went from sort of, you know, this, this very loose model for almost everybody to this restrictive model for almost everybody. But in the interim, what always frustrated me was I was out there with a, with a sort of subset of people in the pain community trying to get people to risk stratifying the patients and deliver opioid therapy in a, in, in a different fashion commensurate with the risk level of the patient. And the field as a whole 
struggled to be able to do that and ultimately, as you can tell, was not able to do that on a mass scale. So the, I'm sure you're very familiar with this phrase, uh, the right patient at the right time with the right prescription, uh, right. in some ways sums up uh, your common, although ironically, in an effort to improve uh, treatment, uh, that led to, you per your phrase, this revolution of prescribing, and let's just say uh, the least, uh, things more or less evolved and got out of hand. Uh, That's let, correct. Let, let's go to um, more specifics still. You'll be giving a keynote on abuse to turn formulations in a couple of weeks in the D.C. area uh, at a conference. Uh, you'll be discussing the goals of this uh, ADF, abuse to turn formulations. Uh, just top of line, what seems somewhat intuitive, uh, but the goals of uh, ADF are? So, um, abuse deterrent formulations have been developed over the last few years in an effort to try to, to, try to uh, make it more difficult to manipulate long-acting opioids. into and, and, and more recently, there have also been some abuse deterrent formulations of short-acting opioids. Um, to to basically make it more difficult to take what is meant to be an oral formulation and either use it na intranasally or intravenously, and to try to do the best we can to put to to make these drugs less appealing for diversion for people who might try to get their hands on them uh, who are not pain patients and manipulate them, and also in recognition of the fact that people with pain, some of them are also. Uh, susceptible to addiction, um, genetically, psychiatrically, in addition to having that opioid exposure. As I always like to say, uh, the, the three components to turning someone into a drug abuser or a drug addict basically are you have to have an exposure to a potentially abus abusable drug in a vulnerable person at a vulnerable time. So think about it. In chronic pain, um, if you've exhausted non-opioid and other, uh, other types of uh, treatments, you're going, you're going to have an exposure. And almost everyone is going to be at a vulnerable time, meaning to say they'll be at a time of stress. And in between is the assessment of the individual vulnerabilities of a patient, past uh, an active psychiatric history, past history of substance abuse, family history of substance abuse, male gender, younger age, basically summarizes most of the risk factors. And so, ultimately, if you decide that a patient is at high risk, you're going to have the exposure, you take into account that they're at a vulnerable time, you want to try to mobilize the safest way of using opioids for that person. What the ADF does, and I can tell you, I used to see patients who, let's remember, addiction is, is, is often set in motion by stress. And so I would have people who took their opioids exactly as prescribed for long periods of time, and then all of a sudden they come in and it's out two of their medicine two weeks early asking for a renewal. And then I interview the patient and meet with them, and I come to find out they lost their job. And that's a very complicated differential diagnosis that I'm faced with at that moment. I'm talking to a person, is their pain really worse? Are they self-medicating anxiety? Did they, um, uh, did, did they sell the medicine to pay their rent? I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole range of really serious possibilities. Now, where the ADF comes in is, let's say that person at a moment of heightened vulnerability who's self-treating their anxiety or something of the, of the kind because, or, or just wants to escape because they're so, so worried about their finances or whatever, let's say that person gets the idea that they want to crush the tablet and snort at that time because taking it orally isn't, isn't uh, giving them um, enough of that escape that they want. 
the abuse deterrent is there to basically try to slow down that process before it gets out of hand and possibly prevent it. It's really meant for the for the person that 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 might that, that might have um, those moments of weakness and for to to prevent um, the, the someone from moving along towards this more severe end of of modes of abuse. The hardest core addicts in the world, you know, if if a product comes out with ADF properties and they have time and and whatever and they get their hands on it, they they might very well figure out how to get the drug out with manipulation of the product. Hopefully it'll slow it down. They won't be able to get it out for hours and that'll make it less attractive or the effort is too difficult. It's but it's not they're not abuse proof. They're just a abuse deterrent. And they're, they're and they're not going to solve the opioid epidemic on their own. It's going to have to be a multi-pronged approach. But to me, you know, we need to not be judgmental about incremental improvements as they become available, because this is such a serious problem and so many lives hang in the balance. So per your last point, uh, this is the phrase, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I, I, I thought this was your, your explanation, uh, interesting in that it's, in some it sounds to be correlating vulnerability with modality. Would, would, that, mm. would that be accurate? Well, that's really interesting. I hadn't really ever put two and two together, but I, I, I yeah, I see where you would, where you, where you would think that. And right, that, that, you know, people at times of vulnerability to, uh, who are inclined to abuse drugs, they might very well, um, change the way, the ways in which they approach the medicines, but also we have to change the modalities in which that we u- utilize. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. I mean, I was doing this in the early 1990s. I was at Sloan Kettering, which was one of the institutions that uh, where there were a lot of people really thinking a lot about how to safely use opioids, and um, first in cancer and then beyond. And the funny thing is, you know, if you look back 30 years, we did not have give-back programs to get the medicines out of people's um, medicine cabinets then. We didn't have sophisticated urine drug testing. We didn't have real-time prescription drug monitoring programs. We didn't have validated screening tools to assess the risk in the person, and we didn't have genetic testing to make sure the person was on the opioid that they could metabolize best to try to keep their doses down. All five of those things I just mentioned are now available to clinicians. What we still don't have is a healthcare system that that allows people the time and 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 provides them with the expertise to use all of those tools and integrate them um, into their care of the person with pain who's going to have an opioid exposure. And and you know, in my view, between the ADFs, a few of these, a few newer molecules that are already on the market. And these tools that have been developed, I feel like at least from the clinical side of treating people with pain with opioids, that some of the clinical solution to containing the problem and containing creating new addicts, you know, to further fuel the problem are actually hiding in plain sight. But what we need is a healthcare system that gives adequate reimbursement and time um, because it takes time. I mean, I used to spend 45 minutes with every patient because I'm a psychologist and I was providing that expertise on a team that included expert prescribers. But I can tell you that, and you know, I did it for 25 years with had no lawsuits, no suicides, no runaway addiction because we had the time to understand if a patient was losing control that we really needed to help that person regain control or it was going to be a problem. And I don't believe that anyone, even experts, can do that in an eight-minute visit once a month. You know, the, the time uh, variable explains most, if not everything, 
in uh, our shortfalls in delivery. Uh, point, right. point well taken uh, to make a diagnosis in context of the patient's lived experience just by definition is time intensive and sadly uh, eight minutes uh, doesn't cut it. You did, you did mention reimbursement and I was, that was my next question. I'm sure you're well aware um, reimbursement has increasingly been tied to performance. Uh, so this begs the question, uh, what are or how might uh, payers incent better uh, or safer prescribing patterns? And I guess the simple answer would be uh, allow providers more time. But what else would you or how else would you answer that question? Well, that's a great question because some of those tools that I reeled off are not well covered. And um, and so we need coverage now in some of the domains, particularly in the urine drug testing area. Um, uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of fraud, and so the reaction to fraud um, and uh, that that occurred in that sector um, led to, unfortunately, policies that, in my view, have almost pushed urine drug testing back to the 1950s with an outdated. Uh, mode of urine testing and an outdated set of procedures, which is really unfortunate because the the Cadillac urine drug tests um, will tell you see if it's one thing to it's one thing to use an old, uh, an old fashioned method you know one of those cups with an amino assay strip in it mm-hmm. and say in a person who's not supposed to be on any medicines like an airplane pilot and you get a te- if it tests positive then you send it for more sophisticated testing because they're not supposed to be on those things and the worst thing that could happen would be you'd have a false positive and fire somebody for a bad drug test result the problem in treating people with pain is they're already on these substances. And so you need a very specific test to make sure, for example, that if someone has an opioid in their system, it's the opioid you're prescribing and not their neighbor's opioid, right, mm-hmm. and not an illicit opioid. And so you need the more sophisticated testing. And frankly, in the clinic setting, the false negative is what's going to lead your patient to, uh, un- to overdose under, right under your nose more, more often than not. And that's probably a little more detail than you needed on just that one tool. But in answer to your question, some of those tools cost money. Genetic tests cost money. Um, and, and yet, in some instances, the pa- some patients who's, um, who are on very high doses are there because they are poor metabolizers of the opioid they're on. And if you knew that, you could get them on a more manageable dose of a different medicine. And so, ultimately, I think we need to stop trying to do pain management on the cheap, and we need to recognize the, the importance of all this to society, because we have two epidemics, not one. We have an epidemic of poorly treated pain, and we have an epidemic of, of opioid abuse, misuse, and overdose. And we're not going to solve it without an investment in doing pain management right. And when you talk about time and, and, and having what I used to call a well-opioid visit, where it was an adequately reimbursed visit where you could actually synthesize all of this information that we're flooding clinicians with now. I mean, I, I feel like we should, we should be reimbursing um, those kinds of practices for what they're actually worth to society which is a tremendous amount at a time like right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did and know- we're, I'm sorry, and let me just say that. Sure. Where ADFs are concerned, there's a real catch-22, because where ADFs are concerned, um, I, the payers you know, uh, have often have fail-first policies where people have to fail non-ADFs before they can have an ADF, and, and, the, and, what they, and the reason that they cite for justifying those kinds of policies is often the fact that there's no data that says that ADS really cut back on abuse. 
but then it becomes a catch-22 because you can't get the data because you, your market share doesn't grow. And then if the market share doesn't grow, there's not enough of the ADF out there to actually influence the abuse pattern. And we have to figure out a better way to do this in, co- in cooperation with the payers and has been existing now. Now, some states uh, have, in fact, mandated that ADFs be covered, covered with parity with non-ADFs to try to address this problem. Okay, thank you. Your, your point, I noted this uh, in a podcast a month or two ago. We have this strange situation where we are under-treated uh, and over-prescribed at the same time. <laughs> Let me, That's well said. <laughs> my, my, my last question is um, formula, but I think in this instance, very important. So you, at the top noted, we have an aging population, more likely are more prevalence of chronic pain. Uh, approximately a third, say, of Medicare bennies have some form of cognitive impairment. So the question is, what would a family caregiver or a family member uh, want to know or need to do to provide a more, uh, more safe environment uh, in how their family member is being treated with an opioid. Right. Well, first thing is, you know, to, to do everything that you can to help the patient take their medicine as prescribed and only as prescribed. And, you know, I used to get patients who had a history of addiction all the time and uh, who also had chronic pain with HIV-related disease, cancer, you name it. And, um, and, and they had been through non-opioids and now it was time for an opioid. And, you know, we tried to build in safeguards. We had, but, you know, we also recognized, particularly in that instance where the fam, where the patient has had a history of addiction, that they've often burned many bridges with family members. Um, they've, they've stolen from them. They've been violent with them and so on. And so it's a particularly thorny kind of a problem in that instance where the patient has a history of substance abuse. And, but in either case, with or without a history of substance abuse, a family member can help count pills, can store the pills and lock them up, can, can have frank discussions. Don't be embarrassed to have discussions. Are you taking your medicine only as scheduled? If the patient has cognitive impairment, take the medicine and administer it and have the person take it in front of you. I mean, I think, you know, I think we for too long have been too embarrassed to play an active role in, 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 in talking about these things. And what then happens is by the time we're reacting, the person is in way too much trouble by that time. And so, you know, helping them. And then, of course, also making sure that the patient is also engaging in their non-drug therapies because they can often have um, a very important um, opioid sparing effect, whether it is attending their psychotherapy visits or going to physical therapy. So there's a, there's a whole range of things that family members can do. But the first thing I say, you know, is like um, when you see something, say something, you, you know, the sort of conspiracy of silence until a person gets themselves into terrible trouble needs to end. Well, thank you. That's very helpful information. So, uh, Steve, we're at our, uh, sadly, already our time boundary. So let me say very important subject. I appreciate the overview, and I thank you for it. Appreciate it again. Thank you for the opportunity. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.